You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Historian and philosopher R.G. Collingwood said that knowing yourself means knowing first what it is to be a man, secondly, knowing what it is to be the kind of man you are, and thirdly, knowing what it is to be the man you are and nobody else is. Knowing yourself means knowing what you can do. Since nobody knows what he can do until he tries, the only clue to what man can do is what man has done. The value of history, then, is that it teaches us what man has done and thus what man is. Is that what history does? Is that the point of studying the past? Well, here today to help us think about that is Dr. Vern S. Poitras, Distinguished Professor of New Testament, Biblical Interpretation, and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he has taught for four decades, uh, and author of the new book, uh, just out from Crossway, Redeeming Our Thinking About History, A God-Centered Approach. Uh, Dr. Poitras, thank you so much for taking time to come on this show. Well, thanks for inviting me. Let's start with the, the big picture que- question where you begin in your book. Uh, what What is history, and uh, and what good is it? Well... Actually, I deal with the fact that people have used that word in two related but different ways. One is it's the events of the entire past. And the second use is it's what we write and know about the past. So the one is, you might say, the facts out there. And the other is the facts as we interpret them. And there's a big difference in a way because human knowledge can't recover the past thoroughly. And I put it that way because divine knowledge does have full access to past, present, and future comprehensively. So we're not stuck in a kind of skepticism or in a kind of view that the past only exists somehow in human thinking. Uh, so actually, you know, that the Bible's point of view actually begins to solve some of the conundrums that philosophies of history sometimes get themselves into, uh, because we have a reference point that's stable, namely God himself. I think you you, you really uh, draw this out in the book. Uh, I, I can't know everything I did this morning. Uh, let alone uh, everything that's happened that's influenced me both in my lifetime and in the lifetime leading up towards uh, up until now. But uh, we still write histories. Uh, we still uh, construct uh, views of the past, uh, as you point out, based on uh, uh, based on interpretations and based on our own biases and prejudices uh, and so on. Uh, so in a sense, our view of history is always going to be contrasted with God's absolute view of history, uh, with God's absolute knowledge of everything. Uh, how should that affect 
when I you know pull a history book off of my shelf or, or get a new one in the mail uh, and sit down to read it? What what difference should that distinction make for us when we're actually reading history? Well, one of the effects is to realize that all all human points of view are limited. And sometimes, actually, we bring in the doctrine of creation at that point, right? That we are finite, God is infinite. But God's infinity is the background for understanding that finite people have meaning. He's a personal God, and that, that comes into history, too. If history is just molecules in motion, there's no real meaning. Right, it's just a, people talk about the history of the solar system, maybe or the history of the sun, right? The, the, uh, but the, the really most people, when they talk history, it's human history. Right. But what does it matter, right? If we're molecules in motion, as some of the modern philosophies and and some messages out of scientists, I won't say science because science has to be interpreted just like history has to be interpreted. But if we listen to some of the modern voices, there is no meaning. You just create meaning. Well, uh, the reference point in God makes a big difference then. And because God is personal, human beings are meaningful. Uh, But it means when you read something written by a human being, there's going to be a point of view. And because of the fall and sin, there's also going to be corruption, sometimes subtle. Now, you know, that may sound like an arrogant thing, but I'm one of the people who are corrupted, and you are, and everybody who's listening. We're all affected by sin. So sin is a kind of leveler in that respect of saying we all need to be reconciled to God. We are alienated from him. And all our knowledge gets corrupted because knowledge originates in God. It's God who knows everything from the beginning to the end. And all the knowledge we have is, you might say, an analogy with the infinite knowledge of God. So it's going to make a difference. Now, you can see that, too, when people struggle with meanings in history. And, uh, Coyne, you will know that I deal with the three aspects of when people write history, they have to have meanings, they have to have events, and they have to have people both people who are in the events, right? There's people like Napoleon uh, or Abraham Lincoln, people that we study, and masses of people, not simply the big people, but the little people. That's part of it. And But then we we have meanings of the events. Now, where do those meanings come from? And again, if you don't believe in God, then it gets gets messy. It gets (laughs) very... Uh, iffy as to whether you can have meanings at all. And if you do, they tend to be humanly invented meanings. So who's to say, right? Is somebody writes a fiction and claims that it's nonfiction? Well, you can check it out with somebody else or you can try to check out the facts firsthand. But that's your interpretation. You know, if you haven't got any divine transcendent judge, the whole issue of truth and what actually happened in history gets up for grabs. And we're seeing some of this actually in the world of professional historians. There are people who still aspire to 
on objective reporting of the facts. And there are other people for whom it's all subjective invention. invention. So when you get a book in his, written by a historian, you can say, well, what kind of historian, right? What's he, what view is he taking? Because the bare list of facts, the, the facts are important. We believe, I believe, you know, a, a God is a God of truth. And so, so what actually happened as opposed to what we might imagine or hope happened in history, it makes a difference. Makes a difference to God, should make a difference to us. So that's a reason to exercise care in trying to figure out what really happened, right? So that's the event level. But it's not actually very interesting if you just list events. Right, 19th century German historian, right? Is just giant stacks of yeah. events. Yeah, yeah. And calling him mode whom you mentioned, though I don't, you know, he doesn't have a particularly Christian view. He does point out the weakness of this kind of approach that it's boring. <laughs> Ultimately, what am I supposed to do? It's just one thing after another. The real meanings come when we interact with the sense of human motivations and the question of where is all this going? Well, then again, then that comes back to the question of God. And the thing about the Bible is the Bible gives us uh, I hate to use the term, but it's kind of philosophy of history because it tells us the meaning of history, starting with the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and ending with the end, namely that God is going to wrap everything up in what's called the consummation, a new heaven and new earth, the second coming of Christ. All those events are still future, but we know where history is going in at a fundamental level if we believe what God has told us in the Bible. It's just appalling to think about trying to manage your way without knowing either where things came from. Where did you come from, <laughs> right? And are you just a collection of molecules? And then where are you going? Is death the end? In which case, the Apostle Paul kind of ironically quotes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's, there's no meaning. And then just, you know, indulge yourself and that's going to be it. But of course, the Bible says, no, that isn't the end when you physically die. So a great deal depends on that. And when historians write books, they write it inevitably against some kind of background assumptions. Now, they may try to postpone those assumptions because they don't have the answers. But inevitably, they think either they're inventing meaning or the meaning is there. History is going somewhere. Uh, and so that's going to influence in subtle ways. That's going to influence their work. Obviously, we want every historian to be telling us the truth as best as he can find it out. But not all historians, as I've mentioned, not all historians are any longer interested in that. Because if there is no truth to be found, if it's all a matter of subjective interpretation, then uh, people can be inclined to write things that are what you might say um, uh, uh, politically slanted pieces, right? Whether it's about the American Revolution or whether it's about communism in Russia, if they are pro-communist, right, they're going to paint it in glowing colors. If they're anti-communist, they're going to paint it in, in black colors, <laughs> 
so they're going to, you know, they're going to bring a system to it. But if they're so committed politically, they may distort things, either unconsciously or even consciously. So for so the how... good of for the good of a political program, they would we would say. So so how do you draw a line uh, between the uh, uh, say the postmodern who uh, doesn't believe in absolute truth, so puts their own spin on it and tries to nudge the narrative in that direction, uh, uh, and the Christian who says, "Look, we are all deeply biased anyway, so of course they're going to do that." I mean, doesn't that sort of lead us to the same place with the postmodern saying, you can't trust history because everyone is biased and they're all telling their own story, and the Christian saying, you can't trust history because everyone is biased and we're all telling our own story? How do we, how do we navigate between those two views that sound awfully similar? Right, a very good question. Well, if God did not restrain sin, things would go downhill very rapidly. I think we would end up with a kind of each of us being a, a sort of Satan-sized ego, so to speak, that would just make our own world, lie whenever we wanted. But fortunately, it's not that way. Uh, even for the postmodernists, whose official doctrine is that truth is just truth for you, they're constrained by the fact they're created by God. They know at some deep level, they know better. They're constrained by a world which kicks back at them, right? right? And the documents of the past that kick back at them. And they're constrained by norms. They have a sense of, of the value of telling the truth, perhaps. Where do those come from? Well, they all come from God. God created us and created us, but also then restrains sinful tendencies, which would, if, as I say, if unrestrained, they would just lead to a total collapse of civilization because it would just be raw power. Each of us out for his own uh, selfish good. So we can read with respect uh, things that are written from all kinds of point of points of view. We just have to be alert to the fact, asking ourselves critical questions. And, and the Bible is so important because it gives us the straight stuff, so to speak, right? It's written, of course, by human agents, right? But human agents who were led along by the Holy Spirit, as Second Peter 1.21 says, so that what they wrote was the words of God. So that is a solid foundation, a solid source for giving us, as I say, a philosophy of history. And I didn't mention before the middle of history. The middle of history is in the work of Christ, uh, our Redeemer that sets the, in motion the putting of all things right. So, <clears throat> so with that kind of framework, then we can go out and look at people and perhaps compare two different accounts from different historians of the same thing. And, uh, you know, if they're coming at it from different points of view, but yet agree on a good deal, and we say, okay, I think I can uh, somewhat trust both of them. If they radically disagree, then maybe you have to end up doing your own research. Right? They're saying, 
I can't trust either one unless I check them out. Um, but also then, you know, we live in a community, right? So you check things out by reading reviews. Right? So, so you do all that kind of thing, but that's part of the human condition, right? Of dealing with the fact that we have a mixture. And now the, the theological terms for that is, one is the radicality of sin. It's sin gets in and corrupts everything. But the other side is what's called common grace. Meaning, well, there is a special grace too. If you're saved, it's because God has been gracious to you, especially. Uh, but even people who are not saved, who are not Christians, they're a lot better than what they could be if sin were kind of let loose in their lives. And so that's what we mean by common grace. Well, it's one aspect of common grace. It's common grace that God makes the sun rise on the, the good and the evil, right? There's blessings he has to give lavishly. But some of those blessings are, you might say, academic blessings. And the fact that a good many people still respect the truth. Now that's being, you know, that's being jiggled about and attacked in some ways in modern Western culture. But we're not the only ones to have done it. I mean, people have lied for, for true religion. What they see is their true religion uh, in many generations and for more than one religion, right? Whatever you can, the Marxists have lied about things uh, because they, they're so committed religiously, I would say, uh, right, to their political program. So we have to be realistic about human sin and and to understand human nature. Now, one of the things about what I say in my book is to discuss understanding human nature. And, and we're doing it right now by saying that there's so much that is good and there's so much that is bad. <laughs> and, you know, you, there are some people who go into the world naive optimists, right, and believe everything. <laughs> until they get radically tripped up. I mean, because the, the reality is, again, they're going to kick back at them. And there are other people who are tremendous pessimists who tend to become skeptics, but you can't live with an absolute skepticism. God made us to be not only believe in what he says, but, but to have personal relations with other people so so we've got to negotiate that by learning about human nature. And that one of the things about the Bible and its own records of history is that that uh, the heroes in the Bible are not really uh, white hat heroes. There's they're they're contaminated by sin, except for Jesus himself. You know, David and Moses are both some of the greatest uh, people in the record of the Old Testament, but both of them have sinful flaws. The Bible is, is frank about that. It doesn't gloss over it. But that's actually really important. And think of the apostles, right? That Peter who denies Jesus three times. How can you dare to put such a thing in the record of the Bible? Well, God did it. <laughs> He's, he wants to teach us about the reality of our humanity, both as fallen, right, as corrupted by sin, 
and as redeemed because Jesus reaches out to Peter and he forgives him and he reestablishes that relation. It's recorded in John 21 after Peter has denied him. Jesus comes back and and restores him and then he's ready to move forward and he does move forward, although he still makes some mistakes in the book of Acts. Uh, he has to be, well, it, it's in Galatians where Paul has to challenge him about some of his behavior, uh, which was not in accord with the gospel. So, so, you know, that is so helpful. It's shocking, I think, to people who want to have just the white hats and the black hats, right? Just tell me who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. Uh, but it's real, right? And and knowing human nature as the Bible presents us, uh, it presents it to us, it, it should help us both in evaluating written records of history and in interacting with common interactions of other people of to be generous, to be kind, to to uh, love people, even when they don't deserve love, but to know sometimes you're going to be betrayed. How far should we take the Bible as a uh, uh, as a model of history? I mean, the, the, the Bible has history in it. I, I would be a little hesitant to say it is a history book. Uh, the, there's certainly history in it, but there's other stuff in it, too. Um, how... How much if if I were a historian, should I read you know First Kings and then come away thinking, well, this is how I should write my history of the French Revolution or, or my history of uh, uh, the Cold War or or whatever? Right. Yes. Well, one of the first things to say is the Bible is unique among all the documents in the whole world because of divine inspiration. Uh, there were human beings as I mentioned before, various human writers who were instruments and who had their own personalities. But God superintended it so that it came out to be completely what he wanted to write. So that's unique. And it means that the Bible is completely trustworthy. Uh, but the way in which this impinges on us is is complicated because one of the things you see in the Bible is uh, interpretations of the meaning of the events. Uh, God chooses primarily to talk about the central core of events that are involved in the uh, uh, the steps by which He works out the salvation of the world in the coming of Christ and then in the earthly work of Christ and then in His resurrection and ascension. Those events get a lot of space in the Bible. The history of the pharaohs of Egypt doesn't get space, <laughs> right? There is a pharaoh who did not even identified by name, if you think about it, in the time of Moses, right? Right. But but then he's gone, right? And the, even though Egypt was a premier civilization in the whole world at the time. So you've got to say the Bible has its own perspective that is different, and we are free. And I believe this is one of the elements of freedom in Christ. We're free to adopt different focus on events. We can follow the history of the pharaohs, or we could follow 
if as much as we can uncover it, the history of the ordinary people or the history of the slaves in Egypt and focus on that. So there are just many ways of writing history that are compatible with divine standards. So part of the thing, point that I make is that, that uh, under God, there is freedom under the general guidelines of the Ten Commandments and, and of the, uh, and the perfect righteousness of Christ. Uh, there is a lot of things to write about and a lot of ways to write about them. But you want to be truthful and you want to ask yourself, what's the meaning before God? Of this. Now, many times we don't know fully. And one of the things about the Bible is that it does uncover some of those purposes. So, for instance, in the book of Kings, there are good kings and there are bad kings. Uh, though some of the bad kings repent and some of the good kings have failure. So, again, it's this mix. And the kings are evaluated in terms of the background of the law of Moses. Well, that part we can still do today, right? Uh, although with some differences, because kings of Israel, it was a special holy kingdom. It was a special uh, nation of priests who had a special relation to God. But the Ten Commandments, in a general way, still apply to everybody, including modern political rulers. So it's possible to evaluate that. And that's one of the things I talk about is, is um, history as a source of moral examples. And many historians, it's not so popular now, except in more popular historical presentations. But in past centuries, a lot of historians, both uh, uh, Greek and Roman, as well as medieval and up in and past the Reformation, a lot of people were writing history and researching history primarily for moral examples, good and bad, to learn, to teach people, to teach the next generation. Well, there's a good deal of positive to say about that, but the complaint, which I acknowledge is a good complaint, is that it tends to make, make the past into cartoon characters. Because then you have the good, again, the black hats and the white hats. Right? And uh, so uh, you write of some people, whoever are your heroes, you write as if they had no flaws. <laughs> right. And the, the bad guys have nothing but bad to say about them. But take a figure like Napoleon. I don't really know that much about Napoleon. But he is a very ambiguous character. I'm sure there are some good things about him. He wouldn't have been able to inspire the loyalty of his troops and so much uh, uh, loyalty on the part of some of the citizens of France if he, there weren't a good deal to say for the positive aspects of his character. And yet he was carried away, I believe, in the end by pride and ambition and undertook conquests that were not warranted by the law of God. So, so what, you know, how do you deal with a person like that? There's a certain amount of moral evaluation, which we have the Bible to go by, but it's, it ought not to be simplistic. And we ought to realize the limitations of, if we ask, what was God doing through Napoleon? 
Well, that's a very open-ended question. And many times you can't answer it. Just as we can't answer the question of why did God bring this sickness or tragedy into my life? Or why did God give me this big blessing? You know, of well, I found the woman I loved, or whatever it was you know, that you received as a blessing. Why did God do that? It, it, there's so much that God does not answer. But even in the Bible, there are limitations because there are a lot of things that God explains this is what happened without fully explaining what are his purposes in it. I th so the book of Job and, and the Psalms and things like that, that struggle over why does God do things? They're actually part of the resources that are given. But at the same time, there are general guidelines because we know God's purpose for history. For instance, for this present age, we know that one of God's purposes is to spread the gospel and that many people would come to faith in Christ. And we can see that happening and say, I know what's happening. Not, not, you know, not in perfect detail, but I can understand here is a definite instance of a program of God where I can understand his purposes part way. So what I confront in, in the issue of how do you look at history from a Christian point of view is actually two extremes, both of which are not fully based on the Bible. One extreme where we say, well, everything is inscrutable. We can't understand what God, we believe God is doing things. We believe he's in charge of the world. That should be taken uh, as one of the implications of the Bible. The Bible consistently teaches God's complete control over the world, even minute things like the hairs of your head, right? The fall of a sparrow, uh, let alone the big, uh, big uh, uh, events of history. We should believe that, but saying, I know the purposes of God. I know the purpose of God in 9-11, right? And the, the fall of the Twin Towers. There were people who tried to do that, but it, it, it can easily get presumptuous. So the one side, you say, we can't understand anything other than God did it, but his purposes are totally dark. <laughs> well, I think that's, an unbiblical extreme, because God has saying, what, what's the goal of history? What am I trying to accomplish through? It's to bring people to Christ. And that there are judgments in history, that righteousness can get rewarded even short term, and wickedness can get punished even short term, right? Criminals get caught. And we can say, ha, there's an instance where somebody is getting what he deserved, and that's in accord with God's plan. Uh, but there's many things that are much more mysterious, right? Not all the criminals get caught. <laughs> Sometimes righteous people suffer. Here's Job and his sufferings. And the Bible is, is so realistic. A and Job is such a good example of the limitations of our human understanding. So the one side is we know nothing about God's purposes. No, we do. <laughs> that's overly negative. And the other side is uh, it's fairly easy to see what he was doing in something like the fall of the Twin Towers in 9-11. No, it isn't. <laughs> he may have been doing many things, right? But many of those things are concealed from us. Uh, I think there were people who perhaps because of the Twin Towers reflected upon 
the uncertainties of life, reflected on what if I had been there? What if I had died? Uh, what is the meaning of my life? And God can use that kind of thing, but it doesn't mean that's the total purpose. You know, it's the God's purposes are always grander and deeper than what we uh, are can understand. Even as we read the Bible and it unfolds a good many of these purposes. Yeah, the uh, uh, I remember when I was uh, growing up, the big issue, of course, the Twin Towers hadn't happened yet, uh, but the the big historical event was Israel, right? The the creation of the nation mm-hmm. of Israel, uh, and that was maybe not the the purpose of history. I want to be fair to to the folks in that world, which I was one of them at the time. Uh, but it was a clear marker along the way, right? This is this is a historical moment that tells us that there's another historical moment right on the horizon, and and we can know it's around the corner. Right? So I'm 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 with you in being leery of that, and and I'm maybe guilty of overcorrection. Uh, I I tend uh. to fall on the uh, yes yes there is providence. I, I and and the the last fifth of, uh, last section of your book uh, is all about providentialism and history, right? Yes, I'm. I'm, I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God over history, firmly believe in providence. Uh, and if, if what you mean by that is that we are allowed to make moral judgments, then I, I think I agree with what you're saying. Uh, uh, on another episode in this podcast, we uh, uh, pointed out that Constantine, uh, the emperor, killed more members of his own family than any other Roman emperor. Uh, I, I think you have to be willing to say that was bad, right? Whatever you think about mm-hmm. him, uh, and he's a complex <laughs> figure, you got to be willing to say that was wrong. Uh, but beyond that, uh, even something, even something like, you know, this event leads to conversion. Well, yeah, uh, yes, we can see the connections there, but there's presumably a lot going on and maybe that's just one small part of it. And we just, we don't see the whole tapestry, which is, which is where I start to get a little hesitant. I'm like, uh, we, we know the big picture. Yes. We're moving towards, you know, the eschaton. We're, we're moving towards the return of Christ. Uh, we uh, uh, we know God's themes for a history of conversion and building the church and and so forth, but if you if if a historian wants to pick a single moment uh, or a or a sweep of moments, you know the Reformation, right, and and try to give us an interpretation of it, that's when I, I start saying, well, wait a second, uh, we can do that with Scripture, right? We can do that with the kings in 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 the Old Testament because Scripture does that and it's inspired, but. Boy, I'm I'm going to be hesitant with the even the historian that I like, uh, who says, "Well, this is clearly what God was doing in the life of Martin Luther." Uh, I I love uh, oh, what is his name uh, Merle Daubin, uh, the the uh, uh, historian of the Reformation, uh, and everyone is wearing black hats and white hats, like solidly black hat or white hat, and he picks he puts them on the right side as far as I'm concerned, but I, I still I get super nervous about that. Um, so am I am I too am I too touchy here? Should I should I be more willing to say, all right, this historian maybe he does know what God's providential hand is doing here? Yes, well, uh, I as you know, I talk about the Reformation in my book as one example, because being a Protestant, I believe, and I believe this is from the Bible. I'm a Protestant because I think it's biblical. I yep, I'm, I'm the, Team Reformation. Yeah, yeah, I believe that the Reformation was a work of the hand of God, but it doesn't mean that when that the, the, the people there had no faults, right? Just because Martin Luther nailed up the 95 theses, you know, does he, does he come out 
as just pure white. And uh, he knew better than that. <laughs> he knew that he was a continued person, he person who continued to struggle with sin. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, let's relax about that kind of aspect and, and uh, see that motivations and individuals in whatever period are mixed. But God brings his own purposes to pass through all of this messy uh, combination of sin and righteousness in the particulars. Uh, so I, I think that's a careful uh, balance that is difficult to achieve in practice. And, and uh, you know, going back to Israel, uh, I have a book that actually one of my students gave me, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ is Going to Return in 1988. Yep. Uh, uh, so, you know, that that's an example of kind of the overeagerness that that some people find themselves getting into, uh, but uh, but a, the the challenge I think is to see that things that happen in histories do have a religious and moral dimension. I mean, we take I don't want to get too much into the mud here, but but the the latest round of progressive politics and of reactive, sometimes very right extreme right wing wing politics, I see religious motives behind that. Hmm. The people are sure. looking for a way of salvation. And unfortunately, it's no longer Christ who is the exclusive way of salvation, but a political scheme becomes subtly and unconsciously a substitute. You know, if only we could get the right people in office, and if only we could get our program uh, fully implemented, then we would solve the problems of the world. Poverty, racism, war, you name it. No, no, no. I'm saying, look, Christ is the Prince of Peace. And the problems of sin are so deep that though you can mitigate them, some governments can sometimes do some good things. You can mitigate them. You can uh, pull back some of the worst of the effects of them with good laws and good rulers. You're not going to save the world that way. What, but you see, that interpretation is based on the Bible, and it's applying the Bible to now and saying there are certain things that I can understand, that it's idolatry. Basically, when we talk about a false savior, that's there in the modern world. So I don't hesitate to go there, although also saying, look, I'm human, too. Right? <laughs> if you don't agree with me, well, look at your Bible and try to figure out yourself. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I'm always right, but I am saying we should actually actively use our Bibles. So it, it, that could apply at the level of big movements of history. That could apply at the level of small things. And in my book, as you know, I use the illustration of prayer chain at our church that we send out prayer requests to anybody who is on this email uh, list. And we pray for people. And most, most of the time it's people to be healed or people to get a job or, you know, it's some, some, uh, thing that they're struggling with, right? And then people get answers. 
I have no hesitancy saying, well, well, praise the Lord. He gave, you know, he answered. And sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> so, so that's <laughs> right. a mystery. But I don't hesitate to do that as if God was completely inscrutable. But I do it as a human being. I don't have a, a verse in scripture that says, oh, I, God, hailed Tom the other day from his, uh, from his cancer or whatever it was. You know, I, uh, I'm a human. <laughs> You're a human, right? So, but God knows that, right? The Bible is given to us not so that we would have some kind of infallible certainty in interpreting every little thing in our lives, but so that we would be encouraged to thank him and to understand we're in his hands, fatherly hands. Sometimes we can sort of see <laughs> an element of his goodness, and sometimes it's much more mysterious, but we'd still have to trust him. Well, as we're, uh, as we're coming towards the, uh, our, our time here, um, I, I didn't prep you this with this question. So if you want to pass on it, that's fine. Uh, but if you wanted to recommend a couple of books, uh, either about history or of history for our listeners to read in addition to yours, uh, is there anything you would point them towards? Boy, that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, you know, the obvious thing was to say, well, read the Bible, because as you point out, <laughs> it's got a lot of history in it, right? It's not all that. There's a huge amount of history, and it's trustworthy, right? And it gives us a divine perspective. Uh, if I had one book to recommend besides that, it would be that of my colleague, John Frame. Uh, history of Western philosophy and theology. Now, that's pretty heavy, but it explains a huge amount about Western civilization and explains it against the background of a sound understanding of the Bible. If you want one more thing that's at the opposite extreme, it would be my wife's book, uh, Johannes Eklampadius, Reformer of Basel. She wrote a book, it's a history book, basically about the life of this uh, reformer, and I think it's a wonderful book. It gets into his life and shows God's providential hand, uh, and at the same time, respecting the fact, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. Uh, and I, my understanding, based on listening to the, the other podcast you, you recorded, uh, there are two versions of that, right? There's the academic version, and then there's the uh, kind of popular version that Reformation Heritage Books put out. That's right. Yeah, it's the popular version. The dissertation is 800 pages. <laughs> Not everybody is up to that. It's the popular version I'm thinking of. Uh, well, anything else you'd like our listeners to know uh, about history uh, and its study? Well, I would uh, want to underline the fact you and I are in history. In a sense, we have no choice <laughs> but to be interested in it. Right. But one of the values is to gain some perspective. Right. So, you know, we're all beset by a kind of egocentrism. I'm the center of the universe. History can remind us God's purposes are bigger, much bigger. And the Bible has that effect, too. Some people won't read the Old Testament. Ah, It's all dead and dry past. No, it's showing how God was working in times very different from ours but all with a unified plan leading forward to Christ. So I think history is inevitable. 
for us who are human because we are in it, right? God's put us in it. We have to wrestle with the meaning of our own lives. That is a good place, I think, for us to stop. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Uh, thank you for uh, your, your good thoughts here and your good work in writing this book. Oh, thank for again for inviting me. And uh, listeners, please do go out and pick up uh, Redeeming Our Thinking About History, A God-Centered Approach. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island and the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of high